This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the BBC. Hello, I'm Helen Mark, and thanks for downloading this episode of Radio 4's Open Country podcast, a series that brings you fascinating stories from every corner of the UK countryside. We hope you enjoy it. I'm in a village in South Lincolnshire. I've just stopped for a moment because there is a stream and there's a bridge. In fact, you can ford the stream, although there's quite a lot of water, so I wouldn't like to try that. There's a little bit of warmth in the sunshine. Just beyond the cottages, there's the tall spire of a country church. It's very pretty. And when you think of Lincolnshire at this time of year, the first thing that comes to mind are those vast acres of tulips which are grown around Spalding. But for this week's Open Country, I'm interested in meeting people who have a more personal connection with flowers. I'm going to head towards Lincoln to Brattleby House Farm, which has been in the Wright family for generations. And it's a family with an alternative approach to art, nature and spirituality. I'm going to meet Ruth in the snowdrop wood there. On Sunday we've got a, a naming ceremony for Jemima and we're inviting a druid, Kevin Guy, who's a good friend of ours, into the snowdrop woods and he's going to lead a ceremony and he has like a written sort of poetical piece to read out and basically it's just to invite nature into Jemima's life. <laughs> She's a little baby. Yeah. She's one of your five children. Why do you want to do that as we stand here in this woodland where there are still snowdrops and daffodils remaining and those lovely little scattering of blue plants down the path. Why are you wanting to do this? Well we wanted to do it because they've always been brought up with um, christenings and Church of England settings and I always find it claustrophobic to be in a building (laughs) and we've always brought them up to be close to nature and we wanted to do something that was like inviting something spiritual into her life but something that was just accessible and was everywhere and didn't make her feel disconnected in any way and something that's loving you know that's not just all about being in a pew and having no relationship at all with what's around and I think spiritually there's quite a shift in that direction anyway and you'll be doing that outside in this woodland. We'll come past the house, Brattleby. Yeah, Brattleby yeah. House Farm. Hmm. Yeah, and just... this is the woodland which is part of that. Yeah. It's got a long family connection by it's just a... being here in this place. It's a very spiritual place. David's uh, family had to move out in the wartime in the Second World War because the Dambusters lived here for a while. They fought the war from here, Guy Gibson and all that lot. And the family were asked to move while the RAF came in. But David's grandma stayed here, and she was a spiritualist. And David is? Um, my husband, mm-hmm. yeah. And the grandma, she was quite a spiritualist, and she would go out to the woods to put candles under a tree where her husband, she would speak to her husband. She was very au fait with that kind of side of things in nature. And she and Guy Gibson would talk about it in the evenings, and apparently he was known to have said that he had enough experience of three dimensions, he didn't want to know about a fourth. <laughs> So that was quite funny, I thought, but it was just, but there is that aspect of things around here. I think they're very sort of at one with their world, you know, and there's a lot of history in the planting and the snowdrops and the crocuses and the aconites. They're all wonderful plants that the family since the 17th century, late 17th century have planted. So it is a real historical and spiritual place. 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's not as though you are just doing something, you know, very trendy by saying, I'm going to have my child named in a woodland. This, you know, this is a family which has a long connection with this natural space. Yeah, it's very important in their lives. But since they've been tiny, we've always gone out and planted things. We've planted crocuses bulbs when Lucinda was small. I planted two Royal Lake trees from Sandringham for the girls. Uh, we got from the Woodland Trust because we took part in their tree planting scheme. The girls have also planted uh, tulips. So when Jemima was born, we planted 50 tulips. But there is a real reason for it. And I do think it's really important for children to grow up with that because I think the world is so consumerist and plastic and it's at odds with the material world and I think if they're not brought up with those sort of values then they kind of lose the plot as to why they even exist in my mind Mm. they just sort of lose that identity and you know why are we born we're here to sort of be part of something special aren't we not about just buying junk off the shelves do you know what I mean and I'm looking beyond some of these trees here and I can see a lovely sort of play den created out of yeah, sticks and children. wood. Yeah, that was children. Not a toy in sight. <laughs> Just twigs and imagination. And it is really important for kids. Did Think. you have it when you were growing up? A small amount. I remember making mud kitchens. Yeah, in the woodlands in Birchwood. My parents are involved in the church and we didn't have very much money as I was growing up. And we lived in a very small council estate. And so living here now is like is a shock to me but um but we had a a big country house and lots of space but we did have lots of woodland called the birchwoods and we would play in there a lot and those birchwoods aren't really there there anymore there's like a big motorway there instead but i do remember that was a really important part of our childhood because we would go out the weekend and get lost and we would play and you know when we're here we're meeting people who maybe subconsciously they are tapping in to that most ancient part of ourselves. Yeah, definitely. Our, the natural world that yeah. we're in. I mean, they're doing it partly for joy sometimes, but also to make a living. Yeah. But they're doing it deep down with nature. Yeah, because it's who we are, isn't it? I mean, when you see the solstice and um, there's all these places like Glastonbury and stuff where you <clears throat> can see the light come at the right time, do you know? I mean, they're all there for a reason, you know, to connect people, for communities to be together and to celebrate the most elemental things. And there's nothing, you know, nothing off the wall about it. It's just nature and life. And I think when you appreciate those things, you can very much more grounded in the way you see things in life and your appreciations are much simpler and you're much happier, you know, because it's not all about money, is it? I know we need money but it's not all about money it's about um, living and well-being isn't it as I've been walking through the woodland here at Brattleby House Farm we've been joined by Fenia Kotsopoulou now such a gorgeous surname you're Greek yes I'm Greek and you live in Lincoln yes the last five years yeah and you've come especially here because as we're talking about flowers they, they play quite an important part in your craft of photography. It's one of your many art skills. So explain what you do. Yes, so anthotype is a delicate uh, photographic process, one of the oldest environmentally friendly ways of making and creating images by using photosensitive materials from plants and flowers which you can find in gardens or into the wild. You use flowers to create a photographic effect? 
Yes, and actually I was not the first. Uh, uh, this happened uh, hundreds of years ago. What a magical process. You have done the emulsion by extracting the juice of the plant mixed with water and or alcohol. And in this way you create a light sensitive emulsion, which you use afterwards to coat a paper. Mm-hmm. So you've got one here, it's the most beautiful, vivid lilac. Yes. yes. Okay. And, then and that's, that's from... Flowers. From flowers, yes. Which flowers? Uh, uh, that was that was that specifically was a garbage. No. Yes. It's, got, it's more like a heathery purple, and yet you got it from a cabbage. Yes, you do. I would never have known. Right. And then and you then, add a transparent positive image. So this is like a negative yes. image. Yeah. So there we have we've got two faces. And we set them against our lovely purple card. And we expose plant it. Emulsion. Expose it to the light. Yes, to the sunlight. For days or weeks, it requires patience. <laughs> A lot of patience. A lot of patience. <laughs> yeah. And then the image from the negative becomes transferred onto the card. There's one there. And you can just see a man's face. He's wearing glasses. He's got his eyes closed. It's a bit of jewellery there. And the... The wash, this time, is a, is a green part of the paper, will fade out. Mm-hmm. And the parts where there is shade yes. of the image will stay dark. Uh, unta- dark yes. Hence, you get a perfect exactly. replica of the negative exactly. on a flower emulsion stained piece of paper. Yes, or other materials. This is more subtle, so we use uh, flowers from our garden, first of all. And, and then, the vegetable patch. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the cabbage. Red uh, cabbage, possibly. Yes, red. <laughs> and uh, we try out with tulips, lilies. We start exploring different plants and flowers and vegetables. There is a huge, uh, let's say, risk of failure because you don't know what works, how long it will take. And I like this kind of taking time while exploring and being back in nature. They're quite ghostly images, though, aren't they? Very subtle, and there's no fixative in this, so the no, there isn't not and going I, to last. And no, and that is actually what I find even conceptually very, very amazing because we have the idea that photography fix the time, that the single moment, moment. single moments. When I realized that amphotype, which is this process, cannot be fixed, I was very happy because as a dancer, I know that movement is gone, is ephemeral. I cannot it's gone uh, as you wave your hand beautifully <laughs> this wonderful balletic gesture um, and I can see that kind of movement this kind of life and death even in a photograph in this kind of case it will fade in and fade out will not be fixed in time and this makes the image for me even more precious especially nowadays because I know that will not remain forever we'll all fade it away. has another sort of power which is not the usual power that photography holds, that of fixing time. The image was specifically taken by asking my subjects, the, the people, to close their eyes and to remember one of the most beautiful moments in their lives. And I was taking the photo after a few seconds. This kind of request is linked with memory. So it was very specific the image that I wanted to make and afterwards to transform it into an amphotype, an image making that will somehow fade out, like memories fading out. So for me, what sort of image you want to make by using a process is very important.
I'm going north now to Blyton near Gainsborough to meet Linda Clark, who runs the Spotted Dog Flower Company. And it's about as far from those vast tulip fields as you can get. We're on half an acre here of not very good sand land, which is probably more suited to pigs. <laughs> and we are growing flowers and we grow what the soil likes, really. We've given up trying to grow hydrangeas and roses and things like that because we can't grow them. <laughs> we talk about this being the desert here in summer. <laughs> so we should grow things that grow in the desert. So I'm wondering why it is that you are here and that you are trying to farm on land that which is so fine and sandy that it is, it is in the summer droughts it becomes like that. So how are you um, here, Linda? Well, there was the opportunity to get out and to do something different from what I was doing in IT. And there was an article in the Yorkshire Post which I read. A lady farmer had decided she was fed up with supermarket flowers and she wanted to grow her own. And she was offering workshops for people to go and have a go. Came home and told my husband we were going to start growing flowers. And he just laughed. So that was 2012. It took till 2014 before we were actually in business. We started quite small scale. Of course, my husband being what he was, borrowed a plough and a tractor. And when I went out one afternoon in January, I came back and he ploughed out all these beds. When does the colour start to come to the place? About the middle of April, we start to really see some colour coming through. And then do you but start cutting ready for weddings? Or yes. It's not very pressured, though. I mean, what if there's a storm? I mean, look at the storm, terrible weather we've had. A, well, been. <laughs> I have a wedding next week. I am quite concerned about it, obviously. But the, I can get British flowers. But our flowers will be cutting in the tunnel. We'll have ranunculus, anemones, hyacinths from about second, third week in April and oh. then they will go on and then we'll get the cornflowers coming through outside we've got grasses, we've got peonies we've got probably 40 peonies in now um, when we came here the field and the grazing was very barren, it hadn't been used for 20 years at all, it was down to set aside all around us, there was no life, if you dug the soil it was sterile, the worms were a long way down and I wondered why things kept dying in the garden, you know, ever the opposite Optimist. I used to plant all sorts of things because I'd had easy gardens before and they all died while I was at work. And then we realised that, I mean, going back a few years, then we realised that the, it, the soil was so dry and sandy that you had to look after it a little bit better. We've got a whole space, really, for birds, butterflies, bees, all that sort of thing. And you actually see the birds at this level, and uh, you know, a metre high off the ground. And we never used to see that before. Things like finches, skylarks, little pied wagtails and things tripping up and down the field. And it's lovely. And, you know, you get the buzzards overhead and it's the best place in the world to be. Coming through to the garden, we might actually catch a bee working. Okay. It's quite early in the year yet, isn't it, for the bees to be busy? It is only nine degrees at the moment, which is really borderline. They're not normally flying much below 12, 14. You did catch a glimpse of one, though. On, they're, they're there, on the hellebore at the back. I get very happy when I see them at this time of year because it means they've got through the winter. And I'm with Sarah Algar, who is the secretary of the Lincolnshire Bee Association. Well, the, the, the Grant Grantham District, yes. yes. And while we're here to talk to people, meet people who are connected sort of in quite an intimate way with flowers in their lives, it's a natural progression to think about the bees. Absolutely, it's how I got into beekeeping because I'm first and foremost a gardener. Everything I planted was planting with pollinators in mind. What's very important for bees is to have a source of pollen and nectar 
early and late in the season so I try and extend the flowering period as much as possible because on days like this when they do venture out they need some sustenance. So you lure them in with oh, the treat of these, I do. these flowers. <laughs> they don't like to go too far at this time of year. Obviously when it's cold they don't forage as far as three miles which they would do in the peak of summer so they need something quite close to the hive. And as a honeymaker is it quite nice to know where it is they're gathering their nectar from? Absolutely. I've, I've just actually sent off a sample for testing to see what they have been, been gathering it on. I haven't had the results yet, but I'm, I'm quite excited by that. We're quite close to the hives now. There's, there's like a little ramp goes into the bottom of the hive, and I can see quite a few bees lined up there, sort of hovering and going in. Some of them are coming back from foraging. Some of them will probably be just taking out a little, what they call a cleansing flight. So very clean creatures. They don't poo in the hive. So... <laughs> They fly out. They fly out. Have a poo and go back. They do indeed. (laughs) And some of them will be young bees taking orientation flights. They just come out and hover around a bit and go back in to to learn where the hive is and how to to come back to it. And what's happening inside the hive at this point? Well, the queen will be beginning to lay. Over the winter, she'll perhaps lay up to 50 eggs a day, but she'll be revving up now and building up to the the maximum 2,000 in the height of the summer so she's probably on a few hundred a day now and the worker bees are obviously bringing in pollen to feed the brood the emerging brood you were new to beekeeping just a few years ago totally and here you are these hives now Mm. and they're fascinating creatures they're completely addictive i love them (laughs) you're running courses at the moment is there a growing interest in people having hives oh i think so there's been quite a lot of articles in the press recently about the need to improve the lot of honeybees. There's been a lot of debate about whether farmers should be using neonicotinoids and I think it's, it's brought it to the public awareness and there's a lot more hobby beekeepers like me. You talk of the growing numbers but a lot of people are still quite frightened of bees. It's definitely not for everyone. One of the things we do on the course, the final session, is a practical session whereby you can get kitted up and actually go in a hive and handle bees for yourself and that is the moment people think whether it is or isn't for them we've had people faint um, we've had people step back in horror and we've had people that just go wow and, and that's what we that's what we like but um, yeah you can open up the hive sometimes and you will get a distinct and then you know they're not happy and sometimes you can open it up and there's there's a definite crackling sound. Sounds like cellophane being crackled. And that's usually because they, they're queenless for some reason, not the gentle humming. That's more of a happy sound, yes. Oh, are we in Lincolnshire back again? Lincolnshire. Well, strictly speaking, I don't know where the board is. It goes Castle, the other the side castle's of the castle. in Lincolnshire. No, isn't it? It's not. It's in Leicestershire. Oh, it's only just then. Yeah, the other side. On. The other side is Lincolnshire. Yeah. So I'm standing in a field and there's, there's quite a heated debate going on as to where exactly we are. And so have you made a decision, guys? Uh, I think we're in Leicestershire, just. I think I've got a foot in each camp. <laughs> Keith Challen, we're standing in a field and there are bare-stemmed shrubs in rows all around me. Because, Keith, you are the farm manager of beaver... Fruit farms. Fruit farms. And I'm in the midst of a field of elderflowers. And we're also with Pev Manners. And this, this is your business, Pev. 
So I'm thinking of these flowers. Now, when do you find that here they, they come into first bloom? Well, we first start to see flowers mid to late May, the very first signs of, of coming in into flower. And then that... It'll be late flat, this year. Yeah, it'll be late this year. Because it's so, been so cold, it'll be late this year. It'll be June this year, probably 10th of June this year. But that is your harvest time, so it's yeah. quite critical. Absolutely critical. critical yeah. And we prefer the slower harvest period. If the weather's just a bit cool and a bit more friendly towards the elders, that they mature a lot slower and that gives the public chance to pick the flowers and bring them down to us and keep keep them absolutely at the best and at their freshest. The public pick the flowers yeah. and bring them to you, yeah. even though we're standing in your field, Kev. We give them maps where the fields are. What? Mm. We, we advertise locally and an awful lot of people know we're going to do it. They start ringing us in May, are you still doing the elderflowers? Yes. And they, they enjoy it, they love it. It's a day out in the sunshine, you get a bit of work, you get a suntan, some exercise, and you get lots of money at the end of it. And you get the elderflowers. And we get the elderflowers, which are a key ingredient. Last year we were paying £2.20 a kilo, and this year it's going to be a bit more. That's a lot of elderflower might... heads, though. Yeah, but when you've got this bush, which will be out here by then, now you're absolutely about... dripping yes. with lovely, oh. super plate-sized flowers, you can pick a kilo in a flash. Right. Have it, you yeah. done it, Pev? Yeah, we've I, all oh, done it. We've have all I done, done it? it? Pev can often be found I out started here. picking elderflowers in 1992, and I picked every year, all every day of the season, including Sundays, for 10 years at least. Now, the whole purpose of this is to create the fruit drinks, and in particular, yeah. the elderflower cordial. Yes, yeah, mum's homemade recipe. She started making it, oh God, in the 60s and 70s when I was a kid. We had a fruit farm here growing, pick your own strawberries, raspberries, blackcurrants, gooseberries... And this is all part of the, the Beaver Estate. Yeah. This was the car mm. it's, all, it's all on the Beaver Estate, yeah. Mm. We're, we're tenants. And they'd pick it and weigh it in there. But people weren't picking the strawberries. So the Dad went home to Mum and said, Mary, what do I do with all these strawberries? I don't think I'm going to make a strawberry drink. I'll buy a wine press and press it and make strawberry juice. No one's selling that. Mum went, yeah, great, but just help me with this elderflower cordial with you. And the kitchen table was covered in bottles and bowls of elderflower infusing in syrup. So he looked at her and went, well, what are you doing? Why are you making so much elderflower cordial? Well, everybody wants it. Jane wants a few bottles, Caroline wants a few bottles, Amanda wants a few bottles, Mary Rose wants some bottles, Margaret wants a few bottles, all her neighbours. It's true. She used to make about 30 or 40 bottles. And Dad went, are you charging for these? She went, no, of course not, to be ridiculous. They're for my friends. He then said, OK, well, let's start selling it. And they succeeded in making 88 that year in 1984. And then by 1992, when I joined him, and I think he was making... 800 cases. And now we do 20 million bottles. But how was it your mother was making the cordial in the first place? She was asked to stay rather luckily by Lady Astor at Cliveden. And it was her recipe, Lady Astor's recipe, which was on the drink tray at Cliveden House in the 1950s. We make the cordial and freeze it, and then we bring it out through the year, just like a lot of homemade people do. The trouble is sometimes we're getting to the end of middle of May and we're going, when are those flowers going to come out? Because we're running out! <laughs> One year we had to drive down to the south coast, five of us, and do an afternoon's picking just to get enough flowers from some random hedges down near Brighton, because they're about two weeks before us, to get enough flowers to make enough cordial to keep customers happy just before ours came out it was crazy i mean it's quite a common sight to see elderflowers flowering all around the countryside in hedgerows so it's quite unique to see them here grown in rows i think we're the only people that grow them in, in rows. farms elderflowers. Elderflowers. the other thing they're very clever at they actually give off hormone from their roots to prevent other elders from growing so they manage their own population 
So you can't take a cutting and stick it in the ground? No, no it won't grow. We've got a knackered field of elderflowers, which is 40 acres, it's a big field, and all the elders in it are knackered. And three years ago, we left it fallow. Four years ago, we left it fallow for two years. Third year, we put mulch in rows like this, but we mulched it really carefully with lots of organic matter and manure. Left that for another year, then planted, thinking, right, they'll go. They all died because the, of the hormone from the old elders was still, still in the ground. Yeah. Very clever. Right, amazing, really. Yeah. Until recently, we couldn't find anybody who knew anything about them at all. Nobody. Only last week we met a lady from, from Kew who's actually studying elders. If we actually found somebody who's got some real intellectual knowledge. Mm. I love the way that Keith talks about elderflower plants as being completely in charge and quite cunning um, and almost as though... They're like people. And for all their experience of growing elderflowers, it's striking that there is still so much mystery about it. 